The closer your relationship with Jesus, the more spiritual fruit He will produce in and through you. God is relentlessly committed to our spiritual growth, and He will prune anything in our lives that hinders His goals for us. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you can open your Bibles to John chapter 15, John 15. Uh, We're studying the Gospel of John for the last several months. If you're new with us, this passage of Scripture today takes place on Thursday night. Jesus is crucified Friday morning at 9 o'clock, so we're really close to the end. uh, And he wants to take this time to spend with his disciples. Uh, John 13 through 17, six chapters is known as Jesus' farewell discourse or the upper room discourse since some of it took place. In the upper room, Jesus has just told his disciples he's going to die. He's going to leave them, and they can't come with him, even though they've spent three years with him, and all their hope is really in him. And so, as you can imagine, they're anxious, they're worried, uh, they're borderline panicked, and he reassures them, and beginning in chapter 14, he begins to give them some of the most glorious promises in all of Scripture. Uh, If you read chapter 14... Uh, At the very end, it says, um, get up, let us go from here. So it seems to indicate that chapter 15, 16, and 17 took place as they left the upper room and began to walk through Jerusalem out of the eastern gate uh, toward the Garden of Gethsemane, um, where Judas would betray Jesus. Jesus knew that he had an appointment to be, be betrayed later that evening, and so it appears that he began to move the disciples that direction. And while they were walking, he was talking with them. So this is kind of a walking, talking uh, discourse, chapters 15 and 16. Chapter 17, of course, is the high priestly prayer, uh, one of the uh, incredible uh, prayers in all of Scripture. And then chapter 18 records his request. So Jesus is going to use a metaphor for today's lesson to describe our relationship with God. And the Bible is filled with metaphors about what our relationship is with God. It says God is our Father, and we are, of course, sons and daughters of our Father God. Scripture says God is our King, and we are subjects and citizens. Uh, Scripture says God is our Good Shepherd. Christ is our Good Shepherd, and we are the sheep of His pasture. Uh, The Bible uses the metaphor, Jesus is the head of the church, He is the head, and we are... Uh, the body of Christ, this chapter, the first part of chapter 15, begins with a fairly extended metaphor. Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches. Now, we live kind of in uh, an agricultural layer for sure, so you've probably seen grapevines, and so you'll be keying on that as we go through this. Now, remember that at this point in John 14, Jesus has already dismissed Judas. He's exposed Judas as the betrayer. He's identified Judas as the betrayer, and Judas is now gone. So a couple of things that Jesus is doing, the first eight verses of chapter 15, when he talks about the vine and the branches, he's explaining the difference between counterfeit disciples, Judas, and genuine disciples, the 11, number one. Number two, he's reassuring the disciples, even though I'm leaving, even though I'm going to heaven, I'm dying and I'm going to heaven, I'm, as you recall from a couple of weeks ago, I'm leaving you the Holy Spirit. Physically, he's going to come spiritually and live in you. And my relationship with you will be as close as the vine is with its branches. So he's using the metaphor, the word picture of a vine and branches to discern the difference between a counterfeit disciple and a genuine disciple and reassure them as genuine disciples his relationship was going to be as intimate as a grapevine of the brancher. Now, in this metaphor, there are only five parts. You have the vine, who is Jesus. 
You have the vine dresser, that's the farmer, that's the father, God the Father. You have two kinds of branches. Fruitful branches, branches that bear fruit, and fruitless branches, branches that don't bear any fruit. And then fifthly, you've got the fruit itself, and we're going to take a look at all of those. Let's pick up the narrative in chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Here's our first principle. Jesus is the only source of spiritual life. Jesus is the only source of spiritual life. I want you to notice the first two words that Jesus uses are, I am. And you might recall that that was the name that God told Moses at the burning bush. Moses said, who shall I tell Israel sent me? What is your name? And God said, I am who I am, which means I am the eternal, self-existent, independent God, the only one. And of course, the name Yahweh, we translate that Jehovah, kind of a transliteration, that's Israel's covenant name for God. So Jesus uses the name I am here very intentionally. It's not the first time Jesus has claimed to be God. He's claimed to be God on multiple occasions. John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. John 8, 58, he says, before Abraham was, I am, name of God. And in John 14, 9, we just studied this a couple weeks ago, he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So if you want to know what God the Father looks like, look at me, Jesus the Son, and you will see the Father. So this is the last of Jesus' I am declarations. Remember that seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus has these famous I am statements. And they're all metaphorical, but they all represent a reality about him. He says, first of all, I am the bread of life, right? I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And of course, the subject of today's study, I am the true vine. Now, Jesus says, I am the true vine in contrast with the false vine. The false, empty, degenerate, fruitless vine that was national Israel at this point in time. You need to know that the grapevine was the symbol that represented the nation of Israel. It represented peace and prosperity. You know, uh, back uh, talking about the promised land, there was this statement that every Israelite would be under their own vine and fig tree. So the, the grapevine always represented peace, prosperity, fruitfulness to the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, the temple uh, had two huge bronze doors, huge. And embossed on the front of those were very intricate grapevines, leaves, clusters of grapes made out of uh, looking golden at that point in time. So it was a very, very famous uh, symbol of Israel. They even put grapes on their coins during the Maccabean era. When they cast coins, they would put grapes on those coins. So the Old Testament is filled with grape imagery as it relates to the nation of Israel. And Israel was always viewed in the Old Testament as God's fruitful vineyard. Isaiah 5, we're going to take a look at now, uh, is often, sometime, often called the song of the vineyard. Isaiah 5, verse 1, Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest fruit, and he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. So God is saying to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah, I lavished a great deal of care on you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Even before then, I called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I brought you into Egypt, and I brought you out of Egypt, and I led you through the wilderness, and through Joshua, I conquered the land of Israel for you. I have showered you with blessings, but you refuse to live according to my commands. You behave wickedly, which means you produce instead of good grapes of righteousness and justice and love and faithfulness. You have produced these inalienable, worthless, toxic, sour grapes. Um, I don't know if you've ever, we grow stuff at our place. I like dirt, grew up as a farmer, and um, um, we picked 
our daughter picked some cantaloupe the other day that she thought was ripe. So um, Marin cut one open uh, last night or yesterday afternoon, and I tried it. And let me just say, it wasn't ripe. <laughs> when you eat fruit that you expect to taste a certain way and it doesn't taste a certain way, I mean, it's jarring, right? And that's Israel was supposed to produce the, the, the grapes of righteousness that honored God. And God says, my life was supposed to flow through you to the nations and they would see my love, my character, my justice, my honor, my love for them. And you have rejected my will and my ways and you are a fruitless, a worthless vine. And Jesus says, I am the true vine in contrast to the nation of Israel. Now, Jesus is saying two things to them and to us. He says, just because you were born a Jew doesn't mean you have a relationship with God. See, the Jews at that point said, we're descendants of Abraham, Abraham. And because we're physical descendants, we're subject to the blessings of Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15. You know, for you and I, just because you were born into a Christian family, the same thing applies. The same thing applies. There's no difference between Jews and Gentiles here. If you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ or you don't, and that is the source of life. So don't get hung up on whether you're a Jew or Gentile. The issue here is everyone needs a personal relationship with God. Now, furthermore, Jesus is saying, my plan to use the nation of Israel as my conduit to show the world who I am, I'm now changing. Because Israel was not faithful, I am now instituting the church and the church is available to everyone, Jew and Gentile. Anybody who comes to faith in Christ will now be my conduit. You heard this morning, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That means you carry the gospel to the world. Everyone who belongs to Jesus, Jew or Gentile, is called to do that. Jesus said, I am the conduit to the Father, not a people group, not a nation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And the Father, of course, is the vine dresser. The Father is the farmer. The Father owns and cares for the vineyard and the vines and the fruit. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. This verse should motivate you and terrify you at the same time. Let's, let's unpack it. Here's the principle. God is relentlessly committed to our spiritual growth. And he will prune anything in our lives that hinders his goals for us. Let me say that again. God is relentlessly committed to our spiritual growth. And he will prune anything in our lives that hinders his goals for us. Now remember, there's two kinds of branches. Branches that bear fruit, branches that don't bear fruit. The branches that don't bear fruit, God takes away. The branches that do bear fruit, God prunes. Now there are two key terms here you need to understand. What does it mean when Jesus says, in me? And what does it mean when Jesus says, takes away? Now, when John uses the words, in me, he's usually referring to genuine Christians, those who are saved by faith. So here's the question. If a branch, a genuine Christian, does not bear fruit, does not live a life of Christian character and conduct, does not exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, does not live any differently from the world, it says, then the Father will, quote, take them away. What does take away mean? Some translate the Greek word take away as lifts up. There are some translations that will say the branch that does not bear fruit, God lifts up, which means he gives special attention to, and he is patiently giving them assistance to try and help them bear fruit. I understand that. I have been a beneficiary of God's patience. Most of you in the room have scar tissue that should have killed you a long time ago. But God has patiently kept you alive. Sometimes I don't know why. I look in the mirror and I'm saying, why am I still breathing? I really shouldn't be here. As a matter of fact, the older I get, there's a lot more reasons for me not to be here. But God is very patient. So this 
lifts up is one way to look at this. However, most translations render this Greek word as takes away. And when you read verse 6, it seems to indicate that takes away means takes away to eternal judgment. I mean, because it talks about being burned up in verse 6. Now that presents a problem. Because if you are in me, in Christ, you are a genuine Christian. What do we absolutely know about genuine Christians? They cannot be lost. They cannot be lost. Their salvation is secure because Jesus Christ himself will keep them saved. John 6, 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that all of whom he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise them up on the last day. Which means you will be kept until the final resurrection through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So you're not only saved by grace through faith, you're kept by grace through faith because you and I cannot keep ourselves saved. John 10, 27 Maybe even more clear. Jesus is saying, my sheep, my sheep, the ones who belong to me, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So here's the question. How can a genuine Christian who cannot be lost not bear fruit? Jesus said in Matthew 7, 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So just because someone makes a verbal profession of faith and says a prayer in the past is not the acid test of whether they're a genuine Christian today. I'm not saying they weren't saved at that point. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved by faith through grace alone. But Jesus said, obeying the will of my Father who is in heaven, that's the fruit, that's the evidence, that's the proof on an ongoing basis that you're a genuine Christian. Remember the parable of the sower and the seed and the four soils, right? The seed is God's word, it's the gospel. And the soils represent hearts. They're the hearts of the listener. And there's four kinds of hearts that listen to the gospel. The condition of the heart. Remember, the seed landed on the roadside. The hard road, and it never penetrated the soil. And the birds, Satan, came and grabbed the soil. So there was no fruit on the hard road. The seed on the rocky soil sprouted, but because the soil was shallow and there was hard pen underneath, it said the seed sprouted, but it withered and died. No fruit. The seed on a thorny soil sprouted, but it was choked out because the weeds grew faster than the fruit, or the plant. No fruit. Now, the seed on the good soil sprouted and grew and produced 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. So you got a lot of fruit from the good soil. So when you look at this, you say, well, it's clear that the first soil, the hard soil person, never believed and was not saved. Right? It's clear that the good soil person represented someone who, in fact, was saved because there's lots of fruit came out of that life. What about the other two? Jesus said that the rocky soil person receives the word with joy and believes for a while and then falls away. And the thorny soil person hears the gospel, but the gospel is choked to death by the cares of life and the temptations of this life. So the middle two soils are presented with the gospel, apparently receive it, but then fall away from it. The ultimate proof of faith is fruit. Look at verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that what? You bear much fruit, so what? And so prove to be my disciples. So the ultimate proof of faith is fruit. You know, 
If you have a tree in your backyard, we have probably a hundred trees in my backyard. A lot of them are fruit trees. If, that, if a tree doesn't bear fruit in one year, it might be dead. I don't know. If it doesn't bear fruit in five years and doesn't grow any leaves, I'm, I can pro- I'm pretty sure that something's wrong with the tree, right? You presume it's dead. At the very least, it's worthless. It's useless. Um, I am pretty impatient with fruit trees that don't bear fruit. Fortunately, the Lord Jesus Christ is far more patient with me than I am with my trees in the backyard, right? If he was as patient as I was, I wouldn't be here. Matthew 21, though, Jesus curses the fruitless fig tree. It represents Israel, and it completely withered the next day. The book of James says what? Faith without works is deader than Elvis, right? It doesn't produce any fruit. It means it doesn't have any life. Now, I'm, I'm saying this, but I want to give you some cautions. Because we humans are so fast to judge. And we go, well, that person doesn't bear any fruit. They're not saved. I don't know that you know that, right? We know that not every individual Christian produces the same quality of fruit, the same quantity of fruit. Sometimes it takes a long time to grow fruit, right? Some people grow fruit pretty quick. Some people, it looks like they're struggling to just stay alive in their faith, and there's no fruit at all. It may, you know. So it's easy to draw conclusions. It's not our job to judge the validity of somebody's salvation based on what we think is fruit. Spiritual fruit, by the way, is not the cause of salvation. It's the result. It's the outcome. It's the evidence of abiding in Jesus. We're saved not by good works, not by fruit bearing, but by grace through faith. What's Ephesians 2, 8, 9 say? For by grace you have been saved through faith and not not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one would boast. And we usually stop right there. That is a huge error in judgment. You need to read verse 10. What was the purpose for which we were saved by grace through faith? Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Doesn't say sit on your blessed assurance. It says to do good works, which God has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in him. So when Christ saved you from sin, He already has a laundry list of good works that he wants you to do. He's prepared before him. He's got them prepared for you on the path of life. Some of them will show up in five years. Some of them will show up this afternoon. And as we walk with him, he will give us the opportunity to do those good works. Sometimes a good work is simply being a nice person, like, please, thank you. It's treating people with the love of Jesus. You know, we get all exercised. Oh, this fruit bearing has got to be this big deal. No, it's living out the love of Jesus in the world we're in, right? God didn't save us so we could go on sinning. He saved us so that we could do the good works and produce the fruit. 1 John 3, 9 explains this. It says, no one who is born of God, no one who is a genuine Christian, practices sin. But because his, God's seed abides in him, God the Holy Spirit dwells in you, he cannot sin because he's born of God. Now, it doesn't mean that genuine Christians don't sin. I'm looking at you. And all of you are looking at me. And you're going, yeah, Brad, you're number one on that list, and that would be correct. We do. We sin routinely, regularly. It means we don't make sin a habitual practice. It means we don't sin without conscience, remorse, sorrow, repentance, right? It says practices sin. It is impossible for a genuine Christian, one in whom God the Holy Spirit lives, to habitually embrace sin and reject righteousness without the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin. Because the Holy Spirit, one of his roles in your life is to convict you of sin so you will turn away from it. The Holy Spirit's like, you're you're, you're about ready to drink arsenic, and he says, no, 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 that's sin. Don't drink that arsenic. Bad things will happen. Now, sometimes you pay attention to him, and you put down the arsenic, and you don't drink it, and sometimes you just take a double chug. (laughs) 
And then you wind up going, oh, all these consequences, all these consequences. Yeah, the Holy Spirit convicted you, warned you, but you didn't listen. That's all of us, right, from time to time. If you knew me in my 20s, you would hate me. I lived a life of sin, and my conscience saved me alive for two years, and I did it anyway. Now, that's stupid. Don't be stupid. A lifestyle of sin without repentance, especially over an extended period of time, may indicate evidence that that person wasn't saved in the first place. 1 John 2.19 says, they, these are people in a church fellowship, these are people in the body of Christ, they left Christ, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they were not of us. How do we know that? Jesus said, if you're saved, I will keep you saved. You cannot be lost. You did not earn your salvation by your good works, and you cannot lose it by your bad works. Jesus Christ loves you exactly the same when you were a sinner and after you're saved. You cannot get him to love you more by your good behavior, and he will not love you less. But there are consequences one way or the other. Remember that as Christians, we persevere because God's power is working within us. Now, what's the practical application? We have, all of us in this room, have loved ones that apparently have walked away from the Lord. You know who you're talking about. Friends, family, etc. And they put knives in your soul. Your job is to keep loving them. Your job is to pray for them. Your job is to pray that the Holy Spirit, the hand of heaven, will hunt them down in love and save them. And you may be praying until your deathbed. You keep praying. That's your job. That's your calling. You intercede with heaven for those people you love. You never, never, never assume that because they haven't responded yet, they're not saved. God won't save them. You don't know that. We cannot judge from the outside. Pray, pray, pray. The Holy Spirit will hunt them down and save them because God is not willing that any should perish, but he won't violate their free will. So ultimately, branches that never bear fruit are counterfeit believers. God cuts them off, they're thrown away and burned. Judas is the ultimate counterfeit believer. I mean, he was cut off, he's going to spend eternity in hell, but he had the disciples fooled. Not one of them figured out that this guy was the traitor until Jesus fingered him and told him he was. He was such a good deceiver that the rest of the apostles had no clue. Now, we've talked about fruitless branches and fruitful branches. Let's talk about fruit. The mission of the farmer is to bear fruit. The purpose of the vine is to bear fruit. Now, physical fruit and spiritual fruit share at least three characteristics. Number one, the character of the plant determines the nature of the fruit. That's a nice way of saying fig trees produce figs. They don't produce olives. Orange trees produce oranges. They don't produce avocados. You can actually identify the tree by the fruit. If you're bearing fruit, people would identify you as a Christian by the fruit you're bearing, right? Jesus said, by your fruits they will know you. Second, fruit is always visible. You have never seen invisible fruit, have you? <laughs> Healthy plants produce fruit. That's the nature of the plant. If there's never any visible fruit on the plant, something is desperately wrong with the plant. And third, fruit always exists for the benefit of somebody else. Healthy trees, plants, don't eat their own fruit. Orange trees, I've got 30 of them, they never eat their own fruit. As a matter of fact, it stays on the tree till I pick it or it rots on the tree, but they don't eat their own fruit. You bear fruit not for you. It's not all about you. I love you guys. Sorry to break it to you, but that's true. You bear fruit for God's glory and to love and benefit other people. Tony Evans says, you know that you're bearing fruit when others take a bite out of your life. It's kind of painful, isn't it? I mean, sometimes they do. You know who takes the biggest bite out of your heart? The people you love. They're the ones that get right to your heart. So, what is fruit? In a plant, biologically, fruit is excess life. 
A plant that does not have enough excess life doesn't produce fruit. It takes all the energy of that plant to stay alive. And then it produces leaves and twigs. If there's excess life, it produces fruit. It's the produce. It's the life of the plant. The fruit of the Spirit is the produce of the Holy Spirit of the believer. Fruit is whatever God produces in and through you as you depend on the vine for your strength in life. So fruit is obedience to Christ. Fruit is Christ-like attitudes and actions. Fruit is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, and so forth. Fruit is making disciples as Jesus commanded. So fruit is Christ-like character, Christ-like conduct, Christ-like converts. We bear visible fruit as we put Jesus on display. The fruit of your life is a visible display of what you believe, whatever it is. Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, here's what you do. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see what? Your fruit, your good works, and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. Because the fruit you bear, the life you live, is evidence, tangible evidence, that something supernatural lives in you. So when we live in love like Jesus, the world sees the good works that God produces in and through us, and they conclude, God must be real if somebody like you can produce that fruit, because that's obviously supernatural. No one loves like that unless the Lord Jesus Christ is in them. And one of the ways God helps us grow, here comes the tough part, put your seatbelts on, is through pruning. It says, and this first word just slays me. It doesn't say some branches that bear fruit he prunes. It says every branch that bears fruit he prunes it so that it be more fruit. So Jesus gives us a progression. Fruitless, no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, some fruit, is pruned that it may bear more fruit. No fruit, some fruit, more fruit. And then verse 5 says, if you abide in Christ, you bear much fruit. So you think Jesus is interested in fruit bearing? Interested in spiritual production? Uh Uh-huh. Now, pruning is really counterintuitive. You would think, if you want more fruit, you would need more branches and leaves, right? Not less. I mean, why, if you want more fruit, you're going to cut off the branch that's supposed to produce the fruit? When you cut branches back, food production goes up. See, the vine only has so much energy, right? Vine, in the ground. And if the vine has too many branches, leaves, twigs, there won't be enough energy to grow grapes. So up to a point, less is more. Less foliage can mean more fruit. You you know, you've heard this. You can grow foliage or you can grow fruit, but you can't grow both. The metaphor here is pretty clear to us. You only have so much energy. And most of the time, we get distracted into all kinds of branches, leaves, twigs, Lots of stuff that keeps us busy, and the bulk of it is a nuclear waste. It's not bearing fruit. Hebrews 12, 1 to 2 says, life is like a marathon race. And what does it say? Lay aside every encumbrance. Lay aside the weight. Why would you run a marathon carrying a 30-pound backpack? Get rid of the weight that encumbers you. Get rid of the sin that trips you up. And if you don't lay it aside, God says, I'm going to cut it off from your life if it's hindering your growth in me. Now, many of us put time into good things. They're good things, but they may not be the best things. Who determines whether they're good, better, or best? Holy Spirit does. And if they are hindering his goals for your life, he will prune them out of your life and you will cry. And you will whine like me. And you will say, God, this hurts so much, I can't believe you're doing this. It's because he loves us. So how does God prune our lives? Well, he often uses the word, scripture. And let me tell you, the pruning shears of God's word is very sharp. And it cuts very deep. How deep? Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of joints and marrow of both soul and spirit and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
It goes down into the bone marrow. That's as deep as you can go, bone marrow, right? Soul and spirit able to judge the thoughts and the motives behind the thoughts. It's not just what you think and do. It's why did I think and do that? The Holy Spirit knows that. And he'll prune that away if it's not honoring to him. So God's word, Timothy tells us, it instructs us, it reproves us, it convicts us of sin, it prompts us to repent, it encourages us, it speaks truth. The word of God draws us closer to the Savior. God often prunes through providential circumstances. And most of those providential circumstances are painful. Right? Sickness, suffering, hardship, loss of a job, loss of a friend, death of a loved one, loss of reputation, failure, rejection, disappointment, looking in the mirror and going, man, you ain't what you used to be. That's providence. That's aging. That should be pruning some stuff out of your life because you don't have 50 years left to fiddle around. Right? You have less time than you think. A friend of mine died last month and went to the service yesterday. Complete surprise. 68. I'm 68. Those arrows are hitting pretty close to home. Yeah? So what's even more shocking, God loves you so much, he actually allows and arranges troubles and trials in your life to prune and train us. He calls it discipline. Hebrews 12.6, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son or daughter whom he receives. Why? Verse 10, he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Almost everything about your character that is godly came about because of pain in your life. Most of the time, we learn very little from success and comfort. We just don't learn very much. And every Christian gets pruned, no exceptions. God prunes us because he loves us. He loves us more than we love ourselves. And he is relentless to make us holy like his son Jesus. It's easy to say, I want to be like Jesus. I just want to be like Jesus. He will make sure you're like Jesus. And he will prune everything in your life that's not like Jesus. That's because he loves us. Now, pruning is painful, but of course, the result is righteousness. Verse 3, you are already clean because of the words which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it divides the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Here's the principle. Abiding in Jesus is not automatic. Intimacy requires intentionality. Intimacy requires intentionality. So Jesus is now moving into the spiritual sphere. He's talked about the fruitless vines. He says, by the way, you 11, you're already clean. In contrast to Judas, which was unclean, you are saved. You've responded to my word, the gospel. And Jesus now is just going to use a key word 11 times in this chapter, and it's the word abide. And he's using the word to describe the relationship between the vine and the branches. And we are commanded to live our lives in such a way that Jesus will abide in us and we abide in him. That's called joint abiding. And the Greek word is meno, M-E-N-O, M-E-N-O. And it conveys multiple meanings in the English language. Meno can mean abide, remain, stay, live, dwell, reside, continue, hold on to. It's probably best translated as to make one's home. To make one's home. Abide in me, Jesus says, make your home in me. Reside in me. Dwell in me. Make me your permanent home as I make my permanent home in you. Psalm 90 says what? Psalm of Moses, God has been our dwelling place in all generations. Psalm 91 says, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. John 14, too, just says, in my Father's house are many, what? 
dwelling places. So he's talking about living. I want you to think about home. Home is the place where we're the most comfortable, the safest, the most at peace. Home is the place that you long to go after a vacation because you like your own bed. You need your own bed. You're a wreck in somebody else's bed. It's a place of fellowship. Home is the place of strength and rejuvenation. It's where we eat, where we sleep. Home is where you entertain. Home is where you fellowship. Home is the center of your life. It's your base of operations. It's where you spend most of your time. And for the Christian, Jesus is to be our home, right? Our permanent dwelling place. He's to be our source of strength and safety and security and fellowship and rest and refreshment and joy and love. Jesus should be the center of everything we do. So abiding in Jesus means setting up residence, permanent residence, and having an intimate relationship with Jesus. Now, one thing we know, our home should not be in this world. Right? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. You're passing through quicker than you think. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. That's a statement of faith. Many people's treasures are here and they get angry as they get older because they're leaving them all and they know it. The Apostle Peter says we're strangers and sojourners on earth. We're just pilgrims. 1 John 2 tells us how do we deal with this world? And we're talking about the world. We're talking about the things that Satan controls about the world. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world is passing away. And it's also his lust, but one who does the will of God abides forever. So to abide in Christ, to remain in Christ, is to make our permanent home in Christ and depend on him for everything. Now, some people don't make Jesus their home. They just visit him on Sundays. Not even every Sunday. Yeah, they drop it whenever it's convenient, right? They're very good at visiting Jesus when they want something. Oh God, I got a crisis. I really need to be intimate with you now, right? They treat Jesus as casually as you treat a one-night stay in a cheap motel on your road to someplace else. That ain't a residence, friends. That's just a motel room. Abide means to live. It means to stay close to Jesus all the time. You know, the planet Mercury is always hot because it always stays close to the sun, right? The planet Pluto is always cold because it stays a long ways away from the sun. Comets that fly in are hot or cold depending on what? How close they are to the sun. If you want to stay hot spiritually, be Mercury. Stay close to God's son Jesus all the time. Don't go flipping out like a comet, you know, a few hundred million miles away and then come back. Stay close. Stay in his orbit. Live with him. Verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do zip, zero, not a nothing. Here's the principle. The closer your relationship with Jesus, the more spiritual fruit he will produce in and through you. The closer you re your relationship with Jesus, the more spiritual fruit he will produce in and through you. So he's the vine. He's the source of power and direction. We're the branches. We're completely dependent on him. We cannot bear spiritual fruit apart from that connection. As a matter of fact, fruit bearing should not be your focus at all. Abiding in him is the focus. He produces the fruit in you. The vine and the branches are intimately connected. He lives in you through the Holy Spirit. That's pretty connected, right? When you make Jesus your home and live in him, you'll bear much fruit. You know when we're closest to Jesus? Generally when we're in crisis. You know why that is? That's one of the few times we figure out that we're not really in charge. We really can't do anything without him. You can be spiritually busy without him. You can love your grandchildren without him. You can go to church without him. You can pay your bills without him. You can make investments. You can go to the gym. You can witness without him. You can go through all the religious motions, but you can't produce any spiritual fruit without him. And when we abide in him, his supernatural life works through us. We're not the source of the fruit. We're the conduit of the fruit, like the branch. Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Here's the principle. 
Being disconnected from Jesus is spiritual death. Being disconnected from Jesus is spiritual death. And you say, why does Jesus say abide in me? Because abiding is not automatic. It doesn't occur on its own. A person who refuses an intimate connection with Jesus through salvation doesn't belong to Jesus. They're not connected with Jesus through faith. They're not saved. That's the fruitless branch. They can be a counterfeit branch. They can come in like Judas. They can look good. They can smell good. They can say all the right things. They can show up. They can hang out with God's people. But that if they don't have a saving, intimate connection with Jesus by faith, where they've placed their trust in to forgive their sins, they don't belong to him. And they're going to be cut off. That's what hell's about. That's why we preach the gospel with passion, because hell is real in the same way that heaven is real. This is not an exercise. This is one shot for all eternity. People that reject the only way to God through Jesus Christ, their destiny is separation from God forever in the lake of fire. Now that's the negative. If you refuse to abide, what about if you choose to abide? Verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, what? Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Here's the principle. As you stay connected with Jesus and treasure his words inside you, you will ask for and experience his will in your life. As you stay connected with Jesus and treasure his words inside you, you will ask for and experience his will in your life. So if Jesus is your home and you saturate your mind with his words because you desire to know what he says, God will answer your prayers because you will ask for what he wants. Right? If God's word is saturating your mind, you will understand what he wants because the will of God is in the word of God. And if you ask according to his will, you will always get a yes. Did you know that? If you want a yes, say, thy will be done, whatever it is. And whenever God decides it's his time to give you his will, he will give you his will. And it may not be what you want. But that simply says we're praying for the wrong things or praying at the wrong time, right? God's written word is so powerful because there's a living person behind it called the Holy Spirit who wrote it and he lives in you. And he's coaching you all the time. And we need coaching. We need to turn a hearing aid up so we can hear it, right? You know, for those of you that have ever been in love, when anyone you love sends you texts, emails, cards, voice messages, letters. Back in the day, we actually wrote letters. I'll bet you read them, don't you? Because you love them and they love you. Well, God's written a love letter here called 66 Books Called the Bible. If you want to know how much he loves you, read it. And ask the Holy Spirit to open your mind. Verse 8. By this is my Father. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Much fruit. Fruit is demonstration of discipleship. Here's the principle. God is honored when his children demonstrate their faith by producing spiritual results. God the Father is honored when his children demonstrate their faith by producing spiritual results. So God was glorified through the work of Jesus Christ on planet Earth, and now he's glorified through the work that Jesus' disciples do. That's called you and me. Fruit bearing is the proof, the evidence that we are genuinely saved and the Holy Spirit is working through us. We don't produce fruit. He produces fruit. We remain in him. Your only job is your relationship with Jesus Christ. I know most of you here are saved, but he wants more intimacy with you. He wants a closer relationship with you. He wants to bear more fruit through you. He wants to draw you closer to him because he loves you. And that's both intoxicating and terrifying. And some people don't want to get any closer to God because they don't want to give any more control up. Guess what? You don't have any control to start with. Right? But you have a divine lover who says, I am your first love. I love you incomprehensibly, and I want an intimate relationship with you. And I want to spiritually produce supernatural fruit in your life, which is make you like Jesus in your character and your conduct. So abiding and fruit-bearing are not static. They're dynamic. 
when it says abide in me, that's a day-to-day, moment-by-moment decision. I have made far too many decisions in my life on my own without abiding. I've regretted every one of them. What makes me think I was that smart? You know, at the time, it seems like, well, I got this. Later on, you go, I never had that. I didn't even know what the deal was, right? We need to grow closer to Jesus every day, and then he does the fruit bearing in and through us. Okay, let me review, and then Tom, come up and do prayer and praise. Jesus is the only source of spiritual life. The only source of spiritual life. Not us, not anybody else, only Jesus. Number two, God is relentlessly committed to our spiritual growth, and he will prune anything in our lives that hinders his goals for us. So when things happen in your life, they don't happen without purpose. There are no accidents in God's kingdom. When stuff happens in your life, you don't understand it, you think it's crazy, it just means you don't understand it. God has purpose in everything. Everything. Number three, abiding in Jesus is not automatic. Intimacy requires intentionality. That's why we want to spend time with him on a regular basis. Third, fourthly, the closer your relationship with Jesus, the more spiritual fruit he will produce in and through you. If there's no spiritual fruit, maybe your relationship is, needs to grow closer. Being disconnected from Jesus is spiritual death. Verse 7 tells us, as you stay connected with Jesus and treasure his words inside you, you will ask for and experience his will in your life. It means you'll have a real, intimate, close, conversational relationship with your Lord and lover of your life. And then lastly, God the Father is honored when his children demonstrate their faith by producing real spiritual results. I love you guys. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.